Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, we'll talk about person-first language and when to use italics. A few months ago, in a segment about the difference between continuously and continually, I wanted to give an example of something that's done continually. So I wrote, many type 1 diabetics have to give themselves shots multiple times a day. They are continually giving themselves shots. And soon after, I received an email from Rick in Kelowna, British Columbia, that read, quote, You refer to those of us with diabetes as diabetics. Diabetes doesn't define our life. That is, there's much more to us than a disease that we have. So the modern trend, apparently, is to refer to people with diabetes rather than diabetics. Do you refer to people with cancer as cancerics, people with colds as coldics, unquote? And you know what? That is an excellent point, Rick. And the term you hear a lot for that kind of rephrasing is person-first language, which coincidentally was something I started looking into right after I wrote that piece about continually and continuously and wish I had done so a week earlier. Person-first language means you're putting the emphasis on the person and not on the disease. It's a little longer to say people with diabetes than diabetics, but it honors them more as people, and that's certainly worth a few extra words. Person-first language may be a new concept to some of you, but it's actually not that new. A Google Ngram search, which shows how often words and phrases appear in edited books, shows that around 1980, the use of the word diabetics started to fall, while at the same time, the use of the phrase people with diabetes started to rise. The change was pretty dramatic from 1980 to 1990, and then kind of leveled out, with diabetics still being more common than people with diabetes, but much less dominant than it had been before. And still, in 1990, the far-reaching Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, used the phrase people with disabilities, instead of using something like the disabled, which also likely helped bring person-first language even more into the mainstream. And indeed, a search of the Washington Post website covering the last 12 months shows 13 instances of the phrase people with diabetes and what appears to be none for the term diabetics. But unfortunately, as with many things, person-first language isn't as simple or black and white as it initially seems. For example, you may remember that last year I talked about whether you should put an apostrophe in the name Alzheimer's disease and concluded that it's best to leave it out and write Alzheimer's disease, but that some advocacy groups strongly disagree. Well, the same thing sometimes happens with person-first language. 
The most common example I've seen is with people who have autism versus autistic people. Many sites say that people with autism usually prefer to be called autistic or autistic people, which is referred to as identity-first language, with autism being seen as an identity in the same way that American is seen as an identity when you call someone an American or an American person. Identity-first language can reflect a sense of pride among a group of people in who they are, and some advocacy groups see person-first language as stigmatizing because it treats the disease as a problem or a bad thing that's tacked on to a description of a person. It can actually be a problem when advocates of person-first language try to force that person-first wording on a group that doesn't want it, like autistic people. So the bottom line, which applies to many situations, is that most people don't want someone outside their community telling them what they should be called. So as I often advise in my courses, if you can, it's best to ask the people you're writing about what they prefer. Just ask. And if you can't ask, it's probably better to go with person-first language, but it's worth the extra minute or two to do a quick internet search to see if the people you're writing about, such as autistics, might generally prefer something else. And finally, I can't end without saying you should only mention a person's identity if it's relevant to the story. If there's no compelling reason to mention that a person has diabetes or is autistic, leave it out. That's been the Associated Press's recommendation for decades. While no one knows what tomorrow may bring, Bridgestone is working toward a more positive outlook. With innovations like developing a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials. It's just one of the many ways Bridgestone is making a difference today for generations to come, because that's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. You pick up the language naturally, first with words, then the phrases, and then with sentences. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com grammar? That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. 
Italic is the name for that slanted type that you sometimes see amid regular upright Roman type. The name refers to Italy. It literally means of Italy because the type style was invented in Italy back in the 1500s by the famous printer Aldus Manutius. Now, you may not have heard of him, but when you look into the history of typesetting and printing, his name comes up all the time. These days, you can open any style guide and it'll give you a list of items that need to be italicized. The important thing to remember is that if your school or business follows a certain style guide, you should follow it too. The four main style guides that you may be asked to follow are the Associated Press Style Book, used by journalists, the Chicago Manual of Style, used by many publishers, and the Publication Manual of the American Psychological Association and the MLA Handbook for Writers of Research Papers, used by many students. All four contain detailed rules on when to use italics. The AP style book is easy because the AP doesn't use italics. In AP style, you generally use quotation marks where you'd use italics in other styles. But once you get beyond the AP style book, the other style guides are more nuanced. But you'll be relieved to know that we won't be just listing all the rules today. Instead, we're going to give you a medium-sized list of things you probably should italicize and shouldn't. Just be sure to double-check the style guide you're supposed to use, because the rules do vary. Here goes. You usually italicize foreign words not yet assimilated into English, but more on that later. Letters of the alphabet when you're referring to them as letters. Scientific names, such as Drosophila melanogaster, the scientific name for the fruit fly. Titles of works, including books, plays, newspapers, magazines, and podcasts. Titles of movies and radio and television series, names of operas and long musical compositions, and names of paintings and sculptures. You might also be asked to italicize the names of famous speeches, the titles of pamphlets, the names of vehicles, such as the space shuttle Challenger, and words used as words. Did you memorize all those yet? Just kidding. You're probably not going to be able to remember all the times you're supposed to use italics, so just keep your style guide handy. And here are some times you don't use italics. Strangely enough, the names of long sacred works, such as the Bible or the Quran, don't take italics. You just use regular Roman type for those. Some style guides want you to use italics for the specific edition of these kinds of works, though, if you use them in a citation. For example, in MLA style, you'd leave the word Bible in Roman type in the text, but you'd italicize the title, the Bible, in your citations when you're listing a specific edition, such as the first edition of the King James Bible published in 1611. Another time you don't use italics is for chapters of larger works or episodes of a TV show. For example, you surround the chapter or episode name with quotation marks. So if you were writing about the second chapter of the well-known writing book On Writing Well by William Zinser, you'd put the book title in italics and the chapter name, Simplicity, in quotation marks. The same goes for podcast episodes. You'd put Grammar Girl's Quick and Dirty Tips for Better Writing in italics, but you'd put the title of this episode, First Person Language, How to Use Italics, in quotation marks. Next, you might be wondering what to do with punctuation marks around something in italics. In the past, you put them in italics too, but according to the American Heritage Guide to Contemporary Usage and Style, quote, 
A simpler alternative system is to put these punctuation marks in the same typeface as the main or surrounding text, unquote. So if you said, my favorite book is Oliver Twist, period, the title of the book would be in italics, but the period at the end of the sentence would be in regular Roman type. Chicago gives similar advice, but also says that if the punctuation is part of the title, like the exclamation point in the title of the Beatles' song, Help, then you do italicize the punctuation mark, which makes sense because it's part of the title. So we've gone through a lot of rules where you do or don't italicize something. Now let's talk about a couple of places where it's up to you, the writer. I mentioned earlier that you're supposed to put foreign words in italics. You italicize these foreign words if they're somewhat unfamiliar to readers. If, on the other hand, a foreign word has been used so much that it's become part of English, you use regular type. Sometimes, though, it's not so clear if the general public will know the foreign term, so it's up to you to decide. Most likely, you wouldn't italicize a common foreign phrase such as vice versa, but you probably would put sotto voce, which means in a soft voice, in italics. You, as the writer, get to decide based on the context in your audience. But even though most style guides do say to italicize unfamiliar foreign words, recently there's been a push to stop italicizing foreign words because it stigmatizes or otherizes the words, making them seem exotic or less valid. So this is something to keep an eye on. In the future, be sure to check your style guide because it's quite possible the recommendations about foreign words will change. Finally, you can use italics for emphasis, but think twice before you do so. Brian Garner of Garner's Modern English Usage notes that the older generation grammarian H.W. Fowler, quote, cautioned that many people, though competent in their own special subject, don't have enough writing experience to realize that they shouldn't try to achieve emphasis by italicizing something every tenth sentence. With experience comes the competence to frame sentences so that emphatic words fall in emphatic places, unquote. Garner therefore says to use italics for emphasis sparingly, and the MLA makes a similar recommendation. If you overuse italics, then nothing will stand out. If you do want to occasionally use text formatting for emphasis, though, and you have a choice of which style to use, also keep in mind that bold text tends to be more readable than italics for people with dyslexia, so bold can be a better choice. Another point that often isn't addressed yet by style guides is that italics can be hard to read not just for people with dyslexia, but for anyone using a computer screen. So often, when you're given the option— it's better to use bold to highlight text rather than italics when you're writing for the web. That's also why we use AP Style on the Grammar Girl website and usually enclose words, letters, and titles in quotation marks instead of using italics. So to sum up, with italics, there are some general rules, but it's especially important to check the style guide used at your business or school. If you don't follow a particular style guide, though, just pick a format you like and be consistent. That segment was originally written by Bonnie Mills in 2009. She's the author of The Curious Case of the Misplaced Modifier and blogs at sentencesleuth.blogspot.com. And I just updated it now in 2021 to reflect a lot of changes that have happened since then. Finally, I have a family-like story from Liz. Hi, Grammar Girl. This is Liz Busby from Bellevue, Washington. I'm calling with a family-like story. 
my three sons all love to do screen time and they are always asking me if they can do it. And so it started out as asking for screen time and that, and it became video games. And then it became VG, which was short for video games. And then it turned into BG, which became pronounced as Bugga. So now they will just come up to me and ask, Bugga? And I found out um, that it's even contaminated some of our neighbor's houses. Um, some friends of theirs now ask their parents for Bugga instead of screen time. Thanks. Really enjoy the show. Thanks, Liz. I thought that was so interesting how you could see the little steps the words took as they changed and then how it spread to your son's friends. It's like a textbook example of how language change happens. Thanks for sharing. If you want to tell me the story of your familect, a word or phrase that your family invented, leave a voicemail at 833-221-4GIRL and I might play it on the show. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find transcripts of this podcast and all the other great Quick and Dirty Tips podcasters at quickanddirtytips.com. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sims. That's all. Thanks for listening. While no one knows what tomorrow may bring, Bridgestone is working toward a more positive outlook. With innovations like developing a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials. It's just one of the many ways Bridgestone is making a difference today, for generations to come. Because that's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.